0: Well, take your Bible, turn with you to Nehemiah, chapter number 2 tonight. Welcome to Wednesday Night Church. Aren't you glad for a place that still has church in the middle of the week? And uh, here's some deep theology. The God who's God on Sunday, still God on Wednesday night. And I'm glad you're here tonight. Looking forward to what the Lord is going to do, and appreciate that good song. And Jesus does; He outshines them all. He's better than whatever you stack Him up against. He's better than whatever you compare Him to. He always outshines whoever or whatever it is. And that's why we're here tonight to rally around Him and thank God for Jesus. And I was talking to Brother Russ just now behind the platform here, and about Team Soul Winning, and they had a great afternoon. Uh, He was able to lead someone to the Lord, and so was Miss Jen as well. And that's a blessing. Team Soul Winning, and. You know, folks get saved all the time. We might not always see it, but God is doing great things, and uh, thank God for that. Nehemiah chapter number 2. I think tonight, I don't know if it'll be, uh, if, I, if I'll preach it all that good, but I think it could be maybe the most helpful message that'll be preached in this series of messages out of Nehemiah. At least God used it greatly in my life as I studied it, and I want I want you to look at it with me tonight. We'll read Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 8, and then we'll read verse number 18 together. You know the famous verse in Nehemiah chapter number 6 and verse number 3 where Nehemiah responds and says, basically he says, I can't come down because I'm doing a, what's the next word? Two words, great work. And he is doing a great work. That's a great work. The size of it is great. The, uh, The reason he's doing the work is great. To rebuild the walls around Jerusalem is a great work. But tonight I want to preach for a little while on this thought, the greatest work of all. Look with me at verse number 1 and chapter number 2 and see what the Bible says. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. And said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be and when without return. So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah, and a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of God upon me. Look with me at verse number 18. In verse number 17, Nehemiah gives a report of what's happening without. A report of what's happening around him. A report of what's happening in the city. But in verse 18, he gives a little report of what's happening within him. It says in verse 18, Then I told them, look at the phrase again, of the hand of my God, which was good upon me. As also the king's words he had spoken unto me, and they said, Let us rise up and build, So they strengthen their hands for this good work. Nehemiah makes the statement in chapter 6, he's doing a great work. But I'm convinced that the great work of rebuilding the wall is not the greatest work that we see done in the book of Nehemiah. Much of the book of Nehemiah will be given to the work of rebuilding the wall. But I think more imperative, more of a necessity than the work that was going to be done without was the work that God first did within the life of Nehemiah. My concern for my Christian life and for yours and just for Christianity, and I'll mention it here in just a moment in the introduction, is that if we're not careful, we emphasize, pamper, exalt even that which is without, and sometimes neglect that work that God wants to do within. Now, I would never discourage you from wanting to do a work without. But I would try to encourage you to allow God to also do a work within. If there's one thing I know I want and one thing I know I need and one thing I know I pray for every day, it is this, that the hand of God would be on my life. For a little while tonight, I want us to think on this thought, the greatest work of all. It might not make sense to you right now, but I'm praying God will let it make sense to you by the end of the message. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for your power. I pray that you'd give us just a great night in church. Thank you for your faithful people. I pray for those in the tents and those in the cars as well that you would have free right-of-way to work, speak, and move in our heart. Lord, we know that you live inside of us by the way of the Holy Spirit. I pray that we'd be in tune with you tonight. I pray you'd help our church as we set out to do a great work for you. I pray that we'd be a church that you can do a great work within. In Jesus' name, amen. The modern example of Christianity given to our world must absolutely grieve the heart of God. There's so much pride, so much performance, so much flesh, and so little Holy Spirit. Have you ever taken a moment to just sit back and quietly consider mainstream Christianity and then consider how far off base from the Bible it is? I gave some time to thinking about that as I was on different airplanes and in a house by myself for a few days last week. And I kind of felt like Jeremiah who sat and watched as they would pass by Jerusalem. And I kind of shook my head and thought, Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? The spectrum runs from extreme formalism to extreme liberalism. And we hit all points in between. But the overall representation of Christ to our generation through the church or Christians at large, I believe, must Grieve the heart of God. I want you to hear this statement. I believe God is equally as nauseated with dead fundamentalism as he is with vibrant liberalism. A lot of what we have to stand against today is the result of what the church has failed to stand for in the past. A weak and worldly church is the fertile soil that every bad thing in our society grows out of. Now, I'm not picking at any ministry tonight, and I'm not trying to shoot at anyone's preferences. But I'm talking about considering the large tent of Christianity today. And would you not agree it has to absolutely break the heart of God? Most of what we call church today is far adrift from Bible principle. There's very little reflection of New uh, Testament Christianity in any aspect of what goes on in many so-called places of worship. We don't have to vote on it. And there's no reason to try to debate me about it because it's undeniably true. The average church in our hour is much more entertainment-driven than it is spirit-empowered. We have our finger on the pulse of the moment, but we're not checking for the heartbeat of God. I'm afraid God has been regulated to being nothing but a skin-deep deity, and He's not allowed to venture any deeper. God made it plain to Samuel that the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. But modern Christianity has become drunken with meeting the desires of the outward. For example, we've mocked the choir and exchanged it for a band that resembles something you'd see in the world. Or the other end of the spectrum is we sing an old hymn that would please God, but we sing it like we're at a funeral service. The old hymns used to be filled with doctrine and sung without show, but now the singing and the music behind it has to move the flesh and attract the world. We've traded out songs filled with good truths for songs that carnal people think have a good tune. Now we say it's our music, but that's the problem. It is our music. It's what we want and what we like. And hardly do we ask the question any longer, is God pleased with our music? It seems like if it's not super liberal and sensual, it's overly orthodox and starchy. And can I say the Spirit of God is not in either one of those things? We've marketed our ministry to the point that you have to search long and hard to look at the flyer and find out if it's actually a church or a community organization. It looks more like a YMCA or a Goodwill or a political rally than it does a local church. Many churches are finding their model in Bloomberg, but not in the book of Acts. The name doesn't tell me it's a church. The people on the picture don't tell me it's a church. The emphasis of the flyer does not tell me it's a church. Everything on it looks really slick, but nothing on the website, the post, or the flyer looks very spiritual. They say, but that's what people want. They want this program. They want this attraction. But why aren't we asking God what He wants? God looks on the heart, but man is looking on the program. Preaching, I mean the Bible way of preaching, has been attacked and critiqued to the point to where many so-called preachers are so ensnared by the fear of man they never get around to preaching. They criticize those who try to preach and never preach themselves because they're trying to keep a pat on the head and be pleasing to that crowd that would criticize them if they joined us and preached the Bible. They open their Bible and give the Word of God some token time in their service, but they never get around to actually preaching the book. Here's the problem. They're for hire. They're bought and sold. They want to be liked and retweeted by everyone and never get around to helping anyone. Their only conviction is they don't think you got to talk about having convictions. They have no conviction on their dress, no conviction on drinking, no conviction on the Bible, no conviction on the title Baptist. They've traded out a declaration of Bible truth for these short secular style discourses. The trend of our day is to tickle itching ears with teaching, but don't preach. The world doesn't like preaching's delivery. And you better believe it doesn't like what preaching delivers. But let me ask you this. When did the preacher ever survey the world for how he was to handle the word of life in the pulpit? I don't see Elijah doing that. I don't see Peter doing that. I don't see John the Baptist doing that. I don't see Jesus doing that. And here's the issue. All of this that we see evident in Christianity today is nothing more than the flesh's attempt to quench the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit and yet still give the appearance of being spiritual. It reminds me of the condition of Israel in Exodus 32. They rose up early on the morrow. They offered burnt offerings. They brought their peace offering. Then they sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. They had enough parting to make their flesh feel good and just enough golden calf to make their flesh look spiritual. The world is going to hell and the church is running to the world. The world is at war with us and we'd set a play date with it. And the reason the church has changed so much is not to be relevant. It's not to keep up the times. It's not just to stay vogue. Those are cloaks that cover up the real issue. The reason we see all of this change around us is the Christian's attempt to worship God and walk with God and work for God without making their flesh too uncomfortable. Take a poll and most Christians would gladly vote to have a form of godliness and deny the power thereof. Go to church to get entertained but not changed. Go to church for conversation but not conviction. Go to church for a sense of community but not an encounter with God. Church is not too far removed from Walmart. Walk in and shop around, get what you want, stay as long as you please, get it as cheap as possible, and just come on back whenever you feel like you need to. Everything in this generation of Christianity is overwhelmingly geared to meet the need of the external at the almost entire neglect or canceling of the internal. Most spirituality today is consumer-driven and not spirit-led. It's like the Athenians in Paul's day. They spent their time wanting to hear or tell some new thing. And we've been conditioned to want the show on Sunday morning to look a whole lot like the show we watched on Saturday night. Here's what I'm saying. The music has to work on my external. The atmosphere has to work on my external. The preaching has to work on my external. The experience of going to church has been dumbed down and drawn up to focus on the work that happens around me or the work of the flesh at the expense of the work that God wants to do within me or the work of the Holy Spirit. Can I say Christianity is much deeper than a personal preference? It is much deeper than tangible enjoyment. It is much deeper than temporal things. It is much deeper than my five senses. This is not a secular thing. This is a spiritual thing. Much emphasis has been placed on the arm of the flesh and little consideration is given to the hand of God. When we think of Nehemiah, the tendency in mine is, at least, and I'm sure yours, is to think of the great work of rebuilding the walls and the broken things around Nehemiah. But I believe there's a deeper work and of deeper value that we can learn from studying this man's life. Rebuilding the walls was a great work, but there's a greater work that is accomplished in this book and in the life of Nehemiah. And in fact, I think it's the greatest work of all. And tonight, I want you to think with me about. About it the greatest work of all. Now let me say this before you say that I'm compromising or strange, and I might be one of those two things for sure. But let me say this: I want to do a great work for God. I would never advocate for you not desiring to do a great work for God. Since the day I got saved up until tonight, I've never wanted to be just another dead Christian going through the motions, making no mark on my world for God. I don't wanna be that way. I want God to use my life. I don't wanna be like every dead preacher. I don't wanna just go through the motions. I want God to use my life. I remember as a new convert reading my Bible, and I'd read how God used people in the Bible. And it shook me to think that God touches my world through human hands. I don't know about you, but I'd read about Noah and man, I'd want to build an ark for God. I'd read about David and I'd want to kill a giant for God. I'd read about Joshua and I wanted to see God knock walls down for me. I'd read about Elijah and I wanted to have his boldness. I'd read about Jeremiah and I wanted his tears. I'd read about Daniel and I'd want his faithfulness. I wanted to see the Red Sea part. I wanted to see the fire. I wanted to do what Peter did on the day of Pentecost. I'd read about Nehemiah and I'd want God to use me to do a work in my generation. I thought if God could do it for them, surely God can do it for me. And it stirred me and it excited me and it moved me. Surely God could still build a church. Surely God could still save sinners. Surely God could still send revival. And if God's going to do it, I said, God do it through my life. We ought never shoot to be average. You ought never want to coast until you get to heaven. You ought to have a hunger to do a work for God. Let me go ahead and get this out. If you teach a class, you ought to want God to use you to build your class. If you have a bus route, you ought to want God to use you to build your bus route. If you're a preacher, you ought to want God to use you to stir the hearts of those that you preach for. In Nehemiah 4, 6, the Bible said they had a mind to work. And it's a good thing when God's people have that desire to do, do, do something for the glory of God. So don't miss what I'm saying. There is a great work to do, and God wants to use us to do a great work. But I believe there's a greater work than that work. In Nehemiah chapter 2, we find Nehemiah several months removed from the beginning of Nehemiah chapter number 1. From verse number 5 to the end of the chapter in chapter number 1, Nehemiah is caught up in weeping, fasting, and praying over the walls of Jerusalem. Now, can you imagine the physical and spiritual toll that that kind of toiling in spiritual work must have had on the life of Nehemiah? Nehemiah was broken and burdened over the circumstance of Jerusalem. Now, in chapter 2, Nehemiah enters the presence of the Persian king. It's very obvious that Nehemiah is not himself. The Bible said his countenance is sad. His disposition is down. His heart hung heavy in his breast like a stone. In verse number 2, the king diagnoses Nehemiah's issue, and he says, you can see it in your Bible, this is nothing else but sorrow of heart. In verse number three through verse number five, Nehemiah tells the king why he's sorrowful. He reveals to the king that God had broken him over the broken walls of Jerusalem. When you come down to verse number five, he reveals his intention. Let's read it. He said, And I said unto the king, If it pleased the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I I may build it. Now you read chapter one. That's a penitent prayer. Nehemiah confesses his sin. He confesses his nation's sin. He reminds God of who he is. He realizes who he is. And then he asks God to do something about those broken walls. But when you come to chapter two, a great change has taken place in the heart of Nehemiah. His his prayer changes. No longer is he saying, God, do something about the wall. Now he says, God used me to do something about the wall. Now, that might not do anything for you, and some of you, it doesn't look like it helps at all. But that did something for me when I read that. When I saw Nehemiah transition from God help to chapter two, God let me help, I had to look into that and figure out what in the world happened in the heart of Nehemiah. Now, most of our preaching begins in chapter two. We talk about Nehemiah's burden, Nehemiah's grit, Nehemiah's work ethic, Nehemiah's want, to, to do the will of God. And that makes for good preaching. I could preach tonight on you go out there, bless God, and win a hundred souls to Christ. You take your bus route from 20 to 50. You grow your class from 20 to 30. And everybody would shout me out, and you'd honk your horns until somebody told you not to honk your horns. But that's what we do. We'd have a time if I preached that kind of a message. But I believe there is something deeper that God wants us to see if we'd study the life of Nehemiah. I believe the greatest work being done is not the work of the wall. It's not the hewing of the stone. It's not the hanging of the gates. It's not the cutting of the timber. It is the work that God is going to do in the heart of that man to prepare him to do a work on the walls. Yes, Jerusalem needed walls. Yes, the walls are the will of God. Yes, the walls are a noble cause. But I believe God had a greater work. If you look at it, I believe the key is found in those two phrases of chapter 2. They're short, but they're very powerful. Now, it's amazing how so much of what Nehemiah will do and what the book of Nehemiah will cover is the external rebuilding of the wall. But I believe the greatest work is not the external, but the internal work. Not the work done by Nehemiah, but the work done by the hand of God. Look at verse 8, the bottom of the verse, the last portion of it. And the king granted me according to, look at this phrase. I read this phrase and it makes my stomach move. I mean, like butterflies in my stomach. Because I know what it is to have it. I know what it is not to have it. And I know how much we need it. It says, according to the good hand of God upon my life. Nehemiah reveals to the king that he's ready to do a work on the outside because he had allowed God to do a work on the inside. Here's what I'm saying. Before the workmen ever did the work, the workman became the workplace for almighty God. He opened up his heart. He opened up his mind. He let himself be filled with all the fullness of God. And he said, the hand of God is on my life. In verse 18, he says it again. He says, Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me. In verse 17, he says, fellows, he's in Jerusalem now. He said, the walls are torn down. You see the distress. You see the destruction. You see the shame of our city. But let me tell you something. That's what's happening around us. Let me tell you what's happening on the inside of my life. You haven't seen it and you might not sense it, but God's been moving in my heart. God's been working on me. God's been putting his touch on my life. There's The hand of God on my life. Twice in this chapter, Nehemiah makes it known that before the work could get done on the outside, he let God do some work on the inside. He spent some time praying. He spent some time fasting. He spent some time mourning. And God spent some time working on Nehemiah. He wasn't just dwelling in the palace. He was dwelling in the presence of Almighty God. Now, I know that's not that exciting. I know it's not flashy. I know we can't tally it up or count it for a big day. You can't step back and admire the work done within like you can the work done without. But I still believe the greatest work of all is not anything you'll ever do, but it's what you'll allow God to do in you. What qualified Nehemiah to be a workman? He wasn't a carpenter. What qualified Nehemiah? He wasn't a mason. What qualified Nehemiah? He wasn't a foreman. What qualified Nehemiah? He'd never been in construction. What qualified Nehemiah? He wasn't even used to holding a shovel. He was a cupbearer. I tell you what qualified Nehemiah to do a work for God. The hand of God was on his life. The reference to the hand of God on his life is like what we would say today. God is really working in my life. Or maybe we'd say this. The Holy Spirit is moving in my life. Nehemiah is a man that had been broken to the point that God could take his life and remake it into a vessel under honor for his glory. Nehemiah needed more than elbow grease. Nehemiah needed more than character. Nehemiah needed more than grit and work ethic. He had to have the touch of God on his life. And praise God, he got it. In Persia, he got the touch of God. In captivity, he got the touch of God. Amidst all that paganism, he got the touch of God. He was in a secular place, but he was in such a spiritual place at the same time that God could touch his life. He said it in verse 8. He said it again in verse 18. He'd report and say this, I'm ready to do a great work, not because I know how to use a trowel, not because I'm well trained with a sword, not because I have the tools to get the job done, but I know this, the hand of God is unmistakably on my life. Now, we do have a great work to do for God. But I'll say it again. First, I believe God wants to do a great work in us. There's a great work to do. There are buses to run and classes to teach and a church to build. But please don't miss the fact that there's also a work God wants to be doing within. We have been so conditioned by modern Christianity to emphasize and pamper the outward that sometimes I believe we have no sense of what God wants to do inward. What we're involved in is bigger than any corporation. What we're big in is different than the Fortune 500 company. We're not a business like every other secular business in this city. We don't have to have what they have and they don't need what we need. But I tell you, we need something they don't know anything about. You say, what are we missing? What do we need? What is it that makes the difference? It's the hand of God resting on the life of an individual. Yes, Nehemiah did a great work without, but don't miss it that God did a great work within. Nehemiah, before a stone was put in position, before a board was nailed in place, Nehemiah went under his own building project by the hand of God. I am for building buildings and I'm for growing classes and I'm for adding routes and I'm for packing out the choir and I'm for all those tangible things. But there's nothing more amazing than the realization that the hand of heaven is resting on your life. Nothing's greater than the touch of God so that you can go out and touch the world. Nehemiah said, God's hand's on my life. Ezra said, God's hand is on my life. David said, God's hand is on my life. Ezekiel said, God's hand is on my life. And I'm saying there's a greater work than Noah building the ark. And there's a greater work than killing Goliath. And there's a greater work than the walls of Jericho. You say, what can it be? There's a greater work. Noah, it's not the ark. It's what God did in Noah first it's not killing Goliath it's what God did in David first it's not the wall it's what God did in Joshua first the greatest work is not the work of the flesh it is the work of the spirit of God in the heart of a man oh I want the touch of God I need the touch of God yes there's a great work to do in the city but there's a great work to do in our own heart Jesus said to his followers you'll do greater works than these how by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus quoted Isaiah and said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for hath anointed me to preach. There'd be no Moses. Had there not first been a hand of God in the life of Moses, there'd have been no Abraham. Had there not first been the hand of God heavy on the life of Abraham, there'd been no Paul. Had there not been the touch or hand of God on the life of Paul when you and I got born again. Can I say it was more than a decision at an altar? It was a revolution, it was a regeneration, it was a new creature born into a new family. The Holy Spirit of God birthed you into the family of God. But he didn't just birth you and leave you. He came in to stay. And here tonight, if you're saved, you are indwelled and inhabited by the Holy Ghost of God. You're his tabernacle. You're his house. You're his dwelling place. The Bible says you're not your own. You're bought with a price. You're the temple of the Holy Ghost. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I but Christ liveth in me. What is that Christ in me? The hope of glory is the Holy Ghost of God. Can I say that? That's what makes the difference. That's what it's all about. This in a secular thing. It's not like watching a basketball game. It's not like attending a movie. It's not like going to a concert. This is a deeper thing, a spiritual thing. And there's a Holy Spirit that wants to work in your life. The hand of God. The Holy Spirit's what makes Christianity effective. The Holy Spirit's what makes me pleasing to God. The Holy Spirit's what makes my work uh, have some fruit. He's our teacher. He's our guide. He's our comforter. He empowers me to do the will of God. He conforms me into the image of Christ. Pharaoh built an empire, but he didn't have the inward work. Nebuchadnezzar had a bunch of followers, but he didn't have that inward work. The false prophets of Baal had zeal but didn't have that inward work. It takes oil to make a car go. It takes a breeze to make a kite fly. It takes the Holy Spirit to make your Christian life effective. The Holy Spirit indwells. He instructs and He longs to give us a longing to have an intimacy with our Abba Father. Every saved person possesses the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit does not possess every saved person. Ephesians 5, 18, and be not drunk with wine in his excess, but be Filled with the Spirit. To say that the hand of God is upon my life is to say the same thing as the Holy Spirit is supernaturally, internally influencing my life for the glory of God. The Holy Spirit did not cease to work in my life or yours when we got saved. That's when He started to work. So let me ask the question like this. When's the last time the Holy Ghost of God moved and worked so tangibly in your heart that you couldn't deny it? When's the last time the Holy Spirit moved through a sermon in your life that moved you to an altar? I could already name names right now of who I know will come to the altar in the invitation who won't. Because the same people come to the altar almost every invitation. Hello? It's mainly the college students. When's the last time the Holy Spirit of God worked in your heart through a sermon where you didn't just say, that's pretty good preaching, that was kind of long preaching? No, you said that was the Holy Spirit of God speaking to my heart. When's the last time you watched the singers sing and didn't watch them to see if they hit a wrong note or missed a word, but you let the Holy Spirit of God speak to your heart through their singing? When's the last time you read your Bible and you didn't just read it to check off your Bible reading calendar but as you read it you got that heartburn and you started to bear witness with that word of God and the Holy Ghost said that's true right there that was you right there that's what you need right there when's the last time when's the last time you came on this property and you weren't looking to find somebody to gossip with but you come looking for God and he showed up and changed your life I'm not getting on to anybody I'm just saying I think that's what I need and I think that's what you need as well we need more than just the show we need more than just the external we need more than just the work without. We must have that work within. Yes, a million times over. I want to be part of a church with its hand to the plow. But better than that is a church with God's hand upon the people. God doesn't just sit high in heaven and look low on us. He resides in the human heart and God wants to move and God wants to speak and God wants to work. And I tell you why so many people quit church and get bitter and broken and backslide and quit because it is frustrating to try to do a spiritual work in the power of the flesh. But I tell you, you get filled with the spirit of God and you yield to the spirit of God and you get sensitive and listen to the still small voice of God it makes Christianity a whole different thing we're conditioned to think of the external but God wants to do something on the inside we shouldn't attend church like a stump speech it's not a political rally it's the house of God it's much deeper than the physical take your Bible and let's read some verses and I'll close Ephesians chapter 3 God's been dealing with my heart about this. Ephesians chapter 3. I know how to do church and so do you. But it's a lot better when the Holy Spirit does church for us. There's a great work to do, but God wants to do a great work in us. Look at verse 16, Ephesians chapter 3. That He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. Now watch this. To be strengthened with might... By his, what's that next word? Spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of church I want to go to. That's the kind of people I want to work with. That's the kind of family I want to have. That's the kind of folks I want to paddle around with. Verse 18, may be able to comprehend. This is why we need to be Spirit-filled, because when you get Spirit-filled, you have some discernment. Whenever you get Spirit-filled, you have some understanding. When you get Spirit-filled, God is seen in a whole new light. He said that you may be able to understand with all the saints what is the uh, the breadth and length, and depth, and height, and to know the love. Can I say this is what it's all about? to know the love of Christ which passive knowledge. He says, you'll know something you can't know without being filled with the Spirit. You'll learn something you can't learn from a school textbook. You'll get something you can't get off the internet when you strengthen that inner man by the Holy Spirit of God. You get to know Jesus a little bit better and you'll understand His love. You'll understand the length and the height and the breadth. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. You say, what's that mean? It's like the illustration where a man filled with a glass bottle with seawater and then he took it through it in the ocean. He said that's what it means, the sea in the bottle and the bottle in the sea. Can I say that's what it is when you get filled with the spirit of God? It's Christ in me and me in Christ and it revolutionizes everything about Christianity. Back in the days before refrigeration, they would pack ice in an ice house. And they'd pack that ice, blocks of ice from streams they would gather in hay to keep it from melting. A man working in that ice house, the warehouse, I read the illustration, lost his watch. The man looked frantically for it, but they couldn't find it. They went to lunch. In the stillness of the lunch hour, a little boy snuck into that ice house. He crawled in the center and just laid down. As he laid still, he heard the watch ticking. And he went and picked it up and delivered it to the man. He said, how would you find the watch? He said, While you were at lunch, I went in there and just got real still and listened for it. said, I could hear it, and I found it. I think tonight, I want to ask myself and you the question, when's the last time you just sat still for a minute, and without mistake, you say, I heard, I felt the hand of God in my life. That is what makes the difference. More than everything else that we have, all this is extra. The power of God is the essential. We must have it. Yes, there's walls to be built, but there might be some things that need to be built in me first. And I wonder when's the last time the Spirit of God moved in your life? I'm going to pray the altar be open, but that's the greatest work of all. God's interested in building a church, but how's He do that? Through building Christians. I'm going to pray. Ask yourself when's the last time the Holy Spirit moved in my heart? When's the last time I felt convicted? When's the last time I felt called? When's the last time I felt like giving up something or missing sleep or fasting a meal? Or When's the last time God was rich and real? Thank you for listening to the Audio Preaching Podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org.